Hi everybody, I'm John Sherwood and this is my podcast where I seek to fuel faith in Jesus in the 21st century. I'm a minister of the gospel and believe in making disciples who make disciples because Jesus really is beautiful and amazing and worth following with everything that we have. You can check out more resources at my website, johnsherwood.com, where I write about the intersection of faith and modern culture, as well as Bible study, leadership, and faith interviews, all designed to help ignite and fuel faith in Jesus Christ. And with all that, let's dive into the episode. Good to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to just kind of diving in to this, uh, this, this topic, and you know, honestly, in our heart of hearts, we know that there, for us to think that two guys can come in here and just totally just tidy up all the issues of race in uh, the world and in our country, it's not possible in a, in a few hours. So that's not even our heart. But what we do feel is true is both John and I are very, very passionate that God has left us his word and that if we can understand his word, on a deeper level and continue to grow in our understanding of his word, then we can understand how to navigate through these types of challenges when it comes to race, uh, which is the one we're talking about today. Um, And and so what we're going to do, what we also realize is sitting here, you sitting there and us just talking is not going to do it either. Okay, and so John and I are going to share some some thoughts with you and some, I'm going to go into the Bible. We're going to look at some scriptures here. Uh, John's going to do the same, but we're going to give you all some things to do together. So it's not going to just be listening to messages. This is going to be, you know, you guys getting engaged and diving in with us. And we're going to give you some things where you can talk about and you're going to have to figure out how to process certain things together. Uh, And so we think that that's a way better way to approach uh, a topic like this. So that's what you kind of have in story. I'll give a message. John will give a brief message. But then we're going to have a, two sessions to where you got to kind of get your hands dirty a little bit yourselves. Um, and so recently at North River, uh, the church that I'm a part of, one of the elders uh, has chosen to take it upon himself to put together uh, a diversity training for our staff. Okay. And uh, so he put together, uh, Bob Keen is his name. Um, he's probably, I think he's in his 60s-ish. Uh, unfortunately, he just lost his wife, um, um, Jackie. But uh, he developed uh, some modules with a couple in the church at North River, a married couple, a black couple. Bob's a white dude, right? This married couple, black couple. And so they worked together, collaborated on about six different modules to help train our staff uh, on issues of, of diversity, race, and things like that. And I'm gonna tell you what, it opened my eyes to the fact that we need to talk about this stuff. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. It took a grand total of about 0.3 seconds for them to open up the discussion. At first hand that went up, tears start flowing. And these are people I sit next to all the time. Every week we're doing ministry, trying to figure stuff out for the church. But once you start bringing up these things, and we have people all the way from in their 20s through the 60s, all in one room, talking about this topic, and all types of feelings, emotions. Sometimes people you could even tell were surprised that they were being so emotional about things, you know. But it was healthy. It was good. 
You know, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5 talks about that. The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding will draw them out. And I think oftentimes we need help. We need, we need environments where we can draw uh, some of the things out in our hearts. Um, and so this is a, a big topic, you know, um, and, and we can't just assume that everyone's, oh, everyone's a Christian. You know, we, 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 we just love God and it'll work itself out. That, that's not going to that's not that's not realistic. Right. Uh, and uh, one of the one of the brothers that in our church, he ended up leaving our, our fellowship and he was a young African-American brother. Uh, man, I love this dude. This is like a great dude. You know, I was like, man, this guy's going to be like the future, young 20 something. And, and I got with him when he when he heard he hadn't been coming around. I'm like, man, what's up, man? What's, what's going on? And he was like, man, I'm, I'm a, I don't know, man. I don't think this is a place for me, man. And I was like, what's up? And he's like, there's so much stuff going on. You know, black man getting shot. And he just started talking about the things that were important to him. And he's like, man, I just don't feel like we, you know, I feel like people in the church, man, we don't even talk about it. And I feel like it's just, it's, I don't even feel safe here. You know, this is stuff that really affects me. And I feel like, I feel like an alien that I even want to bring it up. And then I don't hear anything really preached about as much as I want it preached about or talked about from the pulpit. I want people to say something, something, anything. And he's like, man. And, it, and that was his reason. Now, I'm not going to condone his reason. I'm going to say, I'm just giving you a real conversation I had at the Starbucks in Merida Square with a guy who decided he, leave, he was leaving the church. And that was his stated reasoning. I'm, I'm sure there were other reasons. But he was struggling because he didn't feel that. And so because I was teaching this, that, that happened about a year ago. I don't know, that was about a year ago. So recently, in preparation for this class, one of the books that I know you guys were talking about reading was uh, Crossing the Lines, Michael Burns. So I read this, <laughs> this quote from Michael Burns' book. Um, Black brothers and sisters are negatively affected and tempted with hurt and critical feelings. When there's no public awareness in the body of Christ regarding the racial and cultural unrest in our country, the silence and lack of teaching on the topic has led to a steady drift towards civilian affairs, worldly solutions, and alignment with secular personalities than the kingdom solution and the cause of Christ. I was like, was this guy listening in on that conversation I had a year ago? This, this is, and, and I feel like that's what this brother was trying to tell me. <laughs> and then I read this and I'm like, wow, this is what he was feeling. Quite honestly, this is what he was feeling. Um, and, uh, and so I feel like we're, there's a silence and a lack of teaching on the topic. Okay, that's not going to happen today. We're talking about it. We're not being silent. And we're going to teach from scripture. And so what I want to do now is I, I just want to look at a couple passages. Um, I shared in the sermon today, the, the first four months of this year, we, we spent time in Exodus, you know, four months, just dive, dove in. The year before that, I had felt compelled to study Colossians, and I spent most of the year reading Colossians over and over again, read N.T. Wright's commentary, other comments. I just, it, I just felt compelled to read it, and I dove in, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And actually, I learned a lot, I feel, on, on, on the topic, I believe, of culture and race and how we process that as those of us who claim to be in Christ. How do we process that? Don't you? That's where you are, right? You feel like you're in Christ. And one of the interesting moments in my study was, was 
It revolved around uh, Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses, uh, verses 6 through 12, but I'll just focus on uh, verses uh, 11 and 12. If, if you have your Bible, that's cool. If not, I'll put it on the screen for you. And it says, in him, in, in Christ, you were also circumcised. In the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. Pretty familiar scripture to many of us. A lot of us use this teaching people about baptism, and we kind of focus in on the baptism part, being buried with him and raised with him. And we often talk about Romans 6 as well. But what I want you to take a notice of it is this, the word that is, is, is translated sinful nature up, up at the top. The putting off of the sinful nature. This word can also be translated something else. Doesn't have to mean sinful nature. And interestingly, it shows up in Romans chapter 11. Okay? And in Romans 11, Paul is explaining how he wishes all the Jews could become Christians, basically. And in Romans eleven thirteen, 13, he says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. So that same word that was translated sinful nature before, in this passage, it's translated my own people. And he's talking about, he's talking about the racial Jews, like his people, his people group, the Jewish people, okay? That's who he was talking about, that he wished that he could somehow wake up his own people so that they could be right with God. And so in Colossians and, and in Romans, the, this study is very interesting. And so let's, 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 let's replace that, that word again. Let's go and read it again. In him you were also circumcised. In the putting off of my racial solidarities... Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Familial connections, class connections, race connections, all of those old solidarities, they need to be totally circumcised and cut off, you know, in the sense of what, what he's talking about to be in Christ. We've been transferred from the dominion of darkness, right? We've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. That's Colossians 1. That's, that's his point. That's one of his major points. We've been taken out of another dominion and we've been transferred into his kingdom where we have this new identity in Christ. And it's repeated over and over again. Well, when you're in Christ, you need to realize that your old solidarities, those old powers, those old dominions that you used to be under, you got to put yourself under Christ now. We've been transferred into that kingdom and we need to act accordingly. And so, you know, as, as a result of, of their baptism, this is from N.T. Wright. This is his take on it. As a result of their baptism into Christ, the Colossians now belong, first and foremost, to the family of God, and not to the human families to which they formerly belonged. If anybody had race issues, it was Paul. And if, he, and if anybody had reason to really believe that his race was superior, it was Paul. 
there was a sense in which the Jewish race was chosen by God and, and had a special commission from God. And so Paul held on to his racial identity in a very powerful way. It was really real for him, okay? And so what was so challenging for him and what took scales to fall from his eyes was he had to wrap his, his mind around that God is no longer only dealing with one race of people. It's not just about, are you, can you find your connection back to Jacob and Israel? That's not about that anymore. Whoa, now it, God, being in Christ, it's bigger than that. You can't hold on to your old solidarities like that. It's a radical new existence. You have to be born. Everyone's born from your mother's womb, whatever nationality your parents were. You come out a certain way. You got to deal with it. That's what you had no say in it. That's just what happened. But in Christ, all that's gone. You've now, you've now entered into a new kingdom. That doesn't mean that. Well, don't pay attention to the, you know, to people's uh, uh, skin tone. It doesn't matter. Or just, I'm colorblind and I'm so spiritual. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am trying to help us understand <laughs> is that when you become a Christian, you, you've got to realize it's not just about one race of people, but we are supposed to be a, a group of people from all over in Christ, and that is now our new marker for our identity. But living in the United States, I believe we wear our racial identity so intensely that it causes division. Yeah. We're, not, we're not careful. It can cause division. And in fact, I believe that we become like the prison system in the way we live our lives. You know what I mean? It's like when you hear about what happens in a prison, it's like, well, you know, the white guys are over here, the black guys are over here, the Latin guys are over here, the Asian. And that's how they pretty much figure out how they're going to interact is by what, you, what this looks like. You know, and, and, and we can't fall into that. We, we look at a prison, we go, oh, those savages, those people are just, but we do the same thing. Maybe we, we clean it up a little bit and we're not as, as, as rough around the edges with it, but we can't let racial lines define our society. We've got to realize that this age is corrupt. It's decaying. The present world order doesn't know how to help us be connected and unified. Only being in Christ can we do that. The other passage that was helpful to me to understand was in Colossians chapter 3. And Paul writes, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. That's a big statement. But Christ is all, right there. What does that mean? Christ is all. That's about as mind-blowing as Colossians 1, when he starts talking about Jesus, he is supreme over all things. In him, everything comes in him and through him. And for you, it's like, wow, how does that work? <laughs> how, is all, how are all things made through Jesus and for Jesus? That, that, that blows my mind. But again, this is the same letter, guys, okay? He, he, these are themes he's building upon. So when he says Christ is all, that's deep. He, in, in another translation, he is the totality of all things. Jesus is, is the totality of all things. But what is the context? He's specifically talking about different ethnicities, racial groups, or whatever. This is what he's, he's talking about. He's saying you, you can't get caught up in the Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. You've got to realize that Christ is the totality of all things. 
that Jesus undergirds all of our humanity, no matter what gender, race, nationality, all that. Christ is all. And then he throws another thing in. And he says Christ is in all. What, do you, what does he mean by that? In this context, he's talking about people groups right here. It's right there. Christ is in all. It's not just he, he is all. He is in all. Wherever you look, you should see Christ. Amen. He is in all people. That's what he's trying to get at. We cannot allow our, pre, our, our prejudices from our pre-Christian days. We can't allow them uh, to distort the, the new humanity that God has created in and through Christ. That's what God's been trying to do. The mystery is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you. That's the mystery. Colossians, again, all of these build on each other. This is the point, one of the main points he's trying to make is you cannot allow yourselves to differentiate on such an intense level without remembering that Christ is in all. So acknowledge, acknowledge the different skin tones and ethnicities. Amen. Let's celebrate it. But let's remember Christ is in all. Is in all. That's the beauty of what God's trying to do in Christ. But when you don't have Christ, when you don't see the world this way, you see division. You see a reason to separate yourself from the other person because they're different. That the world doesn't see Christ in, in, in all of us to unify and connect. That's not what this world sees. It sees different, different skin tone, different. Less barriers, no connection. That's not, that's not what God wants. Right? Remember that phrase? Yeah. <laughs> Whew, can't we all just get along? Rodney King, right? Well, I wish we could. I like to read. I'm sorry. That's just who I am, right? <laughs> Crossing the Line, I already mentioned that book. National Geographic. Anybody see that? Anybody? You probably, I don't know. The, you see that? The, 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 the cover, you see, those are twins. Those are twins. They're not just sisters. They're twins. And literally, like, that literally is like my daughters. Like, if you see my daughters, they literally, one is very fair-skinned, one's... So when I saw that cover, I was like, well, you know, it, it had a lot of meaning to me. I was like, oh, you know, so I just, I, I read this fascinating Fascinating. National Geographic. So no Christian. This isn't trying to come from a Christian perspective at all. This is National Geographic. Okay. Um, and here's the interesting thing about National Geographic. They in the in the when you open up the first the letter to the from the editor, you know, very in, the first thing you read, they're basically apologizing. It's fascinating. Look what look what they say. This is just one one of the things that's mentioned. To rise above the racism of the past, we must acknowledge it. Sometimes these stories, like parts of our own history, are not easy to read. But as Michelle Norris writes in this issue, it's hard for an individual or a country to evolve past discomfort if the source of the anxiety is only discussed in hushed And what, what National Geographic is saying is they went through all of their past uh, magazines 
and they had an outside, an outside person assess all of the historical, um, you know, national geographics, and they realized how biased their reporting was, and how racially and just insensitive, and they, it revealed the way they viewed the world, and it was shocking to them. And they they give you many many examples of how they would call people savages and all of this, and talk about their intellectual. Uh, problems and all of these things are, or they would always, the white person was always the one that had the technology and all the savages would look at, you know, it, it's just stuff like that and they felt like, wow, we really didn't even realize it. We, we didn't see the types of images that we were perpetuating and so, you know, they, they took the time to, to kind of apologize <laughs> for what they, what they learned. But what, what did it take? Well, it takes, it takes being willing to just look at yourself, you know. Yeah, I, I just be willing to just say, okay, let me let me reassess how I view uh, race. They did not have any God in their in their assessment. Okay, they did not. In, they're, they're not a Christian organization. But wow, if they're willing to look at what they've said and done in the past, why can't we be? You know, why do we have to get so weird? You know, for lack of a better word, when this topic comes up and. Uh, and, and I've seen this, this play out in the church. And, and I just got to say, you know how when you go, like if you're at an airport and you're having a problem with your ticket, you know, the first thing you are, you get upset. And then you, I want to talk to customer service. I want to talk to your manager, right? You, you, some, probably none of you. You guys are all just <laughs> patient and spiritual. But, uh, but in, in the church, when something happens, guess who they, I want to talk to the preacher. So I'm going to tell you, I've been pulled into more issues. <laughs> Then I want to, and let me let me break. Here, here's one like that I, I recently got, and I'm not going to divulge names, obviously, and all that. But I'm I'm going to just say how how challenging it is for some people. So I ha I have a, a a white brother come up to me. He goes, Jeff, I need to talk. I need to talk to you. And this dude's like visibly kind of upset. You know, damn, what's up? He's like, I, I I'm I'm struggling, man. I I, you know, I was trying to have a conversation with one of the brothers in the church, you know, just talking to him. And I was asking him about, like, man, what's, what do you think's going on with the, you know, the Black Lives Matter and the, all this stuff and the Blue Lives Matter? And, and this is a white brother. He's just, he's just talking to another white brother. He's just trying to figure it out, right? And he's talking to the, to the brother. And, the, and, he said, and he said, man, but the other brother, he said, shh. And he said, let's go talk over here in the corner. And so it kind of freaked him out. He's like, and he, he said, why do, why do we have to go talk in the corner? We're at church. It's our brothers and sisters. And so he said that the, 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 the kind of things that the other white brother was saying to him was kind of bothering him. Like he didn't even know how to process what he was saying. And then he was kind of messed up that they had to say it kind of in secret from the rest of the brothers and sisters. And he's like, this is God's family. What are we doing? And so he was struggling. Right? And I'm just trying to trying to minister to him, trying to talk him down and help him figure out how to go back and, you know, talk to that other brother and figure out what's going on. And so the same day, same day at church, another black brother comes up to me. And he's looking all funky. I'm like, oh, Lord. So I should have kept my head down and just made it to my car, you know. And I'm like, hey, man, what, what, what's going on? And, uh, and then he got the he got the quivering lip, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the brother that's too cool to cry, you know what I'm saying? The, 
but he but the emotions are starting to rise up and he's he's un he wasn't ready for the emotion. He didn't realize how intense he was feeling something, and the lip was quivering, and I'm thinking, oh my. And this is one of them brothers that's really like, cool, cool, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. And he's telling, basically telling me of a Facebook post that he saw from, from somebody he really, one of his best friends in the church. That was so, in his mind, unbelievably offensive, insensitive, that he literally thinks that he can't even, he can't talk to this brother, he can't, he, and he literally doesn't think he's a Christian. Like, I don't think a Christian person can have that view. And, and what are you, Jeff, what are you going to do about it? Kind of about it. And I just said, bro, I'm just trying to get home, bro. You know, again, again, you know. I didn't say that, but I mean, I was so attentive and loving, and I'm sure I was. But, no. but that's that's one day. That was one day, and I, obviously, I remember it was. It had an imprint on on my heart because it, it showed me, ooh, we struggle with this topic a lot. We don't understand, I think, what it means to be in Christ the way the scriptures talk about. Our old solidarities need to be cut off, but not in a way where we pretend like we don't exist. And that's why I appreciate Michael Burns in his book, and I appreciate his analogy of the puzzle box. And I thought that was a very helpful analogy. And I don't know if you've, you've read it, um, but in, in his analogy, he says, whenever you try to do a jigsaw puzzle, it's really helpful to look at the box, <laughs> you know, because it kind of tells you where you want to end up, <laughs> but you're looking at a bunch of, everything looks kind of the same, and you're like, oh my gosh, how, how are we ever going to go from all these crazy pieces to this, right? But man, without that puzzle box, it would be hard to piece it all together, and I really appreciated his insightful take on the puzzle box in the sense of how, how are we supposed to deal with our lives and how we think about what this looks like here? What, what this, how does this matter? What are we supposed to do with this? And he goes to Revelation. When he, and, and when the scripture talks about every tribe, every nation, all peoples will basically be worshiping God together. So that's the end. That's the end game. That's the puzzle box. That's what it's going to look like. So when, when this age ends, when there's no more dying and giving birth and all this paying taxes and this life is mundane every day, racism, classism, sexism, all the isms are over. What's the end game? The end game is all peoples, all nations, every tribe worshiping God together. This isn't going to, it's not going to matter at all. And this, as John will get into, I'm not stealing his, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do the old, you know, you know, toss it up because in his class, he's going to, he's going to talk about the, the concept even of race being socially constructed anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's biologically, it's just not even, you know. It's not even that big of a differentiator. No different than eye color. 
And, uh, and that's one of the things in the, uh, the uh, National Geographic, they have a huge scientific study about how race is just socially constructed anyway. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that we should act like there aren't differences among us. There are. But we have to learn how to put those differences in the right perspective instead of using them to differentiate amongst ourselves. We've got to learn that as Christians, we should be well-versed in being able to look at somebody no matter, and just look at them and just go, I see Christ in you. And I'm going to treat you accordingly because you're in the image of God. And it should, there should be no... Oh, I gotta hold my heart back, or you, know, you might be kind of. Uh, well, you where do you come from again? Oh, yeah, those people are kind of, right? We we can kind of do that. And hey, let's be honest, this can happen within the races. I'm not even. No, I'm not. You know what I'm saying? Right? The light skinned black person has the, the, about the darker skinned black person, and the whatever. You know, it it can go within the race. Let's let's be real, okay? So it. it uh, but we, we've got to learn <laughs> that our old, if you want to define a sinful nature, your, your own racial solidarities, guys, they have, we have to learn how to, when we're in Christ, we cannot let those be our primary markers for how we view the world and deal with each other. We can't do it. Okay? And if at least we get that teaching down, <laughs> that we can circumcise that, Treat each other with the respect everyone's due because they're made in the image of God, first page of the Bible. And when, as John's going to teach you, when you come to the conviction that this is as arbitrary as what color this is or as what color these are, then if you can come from that place and we can learn how to treat each other on that level, then we truly have light to provide this world. Then we have something to really... And honestly, guys, in my opinion, I believe we do a... De <laughs> Compared to the world, I, I do think we, we treat each other across the races or whatever, I believe, better than any other institution I've ever been a part of in my life. You know, the church. The church. So, so every organization that's made up of people is going to have problems because you and I are in it. You know, and we're problem creators. That's who we are. We're sinners. That's what we do. Right? But when it comes to an institution, organization, whatever you want to call the church, you know, in my life, I feel like we have done a, have tried hard to have at least a, a, the ability to talk about these types of things, you know. And we're not perfect. We got a long way to go, you know. Uh, but but I'm grateful and I'm proud actually of certain ways uh, that I see uh, the, the the brothers and sisters of this church uh, treating each other. Uh, in a way that I feel proud of, you know, and, and we got a long way to go, uh, but even having a class like this, I think it is great, and uh, I'm up on my time, and uh, Brother Sherwood. The first time I remember race, really, in my life, uh, I was a very young boy. I grew up in rural north central Florida, and I remember encountering race in the 1980s when my grandmother uh, said that I could be friends with black people, but don't ever bring a black girl home. And I'm sure it was without malicious intent, uh, but that encounter with race resonated with me. It stuck with me for a long time. I didn't know how to make sense of it at the time. It wouldn't be for many, many years later that I was able to even process what was being said. Because of course, at an early age, 
there's really very little construct of race because, like Jeff said, race is a social construct. And like all other social constructs, they're things that we learn as we go. And I don't know if you guys read um, any of the, the books, the materials here. We had uh, Burns' book, Crossing the Line, which I know Scott wrote, I believe wrote the forward to, right, and has worked with the SOC a lot with, and nope, not that one. Um, and then this guy, Daniel Hill's book called White Awake. I think the cover is very telling. You see what the cover is? It's a white layer being pulled back to see a lot of different color underneath it. Um, the subtitle is An Honest Look at What It Means to Be White. And this is from an American Christian perspective. And then if you guys are interested, this is a bit more academic from Every People and Nation of Biblical Theology of Race by Daniel Hayes. Um, as I was reading some of these things, I had some epiphanies, you know. I first uh, encountered White Awake uh, about a year and a half or so ago. And both books, interestingly, neither of the authors know each other. I know that, that Burns has read uh, Hill's book. But both of them actually, early on in the books, refer to the same thing. They refer to our national uh, history and remembrance and way in which we communicate the Columbus discovery of America. And even the, the language that we use, which is actually starting to shift now, um, but historically, and when I was being raised and when I was in school, it was taught that Columbus discovered the new world. Um, and now, I don't know if you know, but I see it on my iPhone. It comes up with the, the little, uh, you know, national holidays. Columbus Day is now also Indigenous Peoples Day. So we're trying to, I think, move in this direction as a culture, even apart from Jesus. Uh, but I do believe, as Jeff said, that the church is really, God's design is that the church would be the ones that really show how we are to be one while maintaining all of these great differences. Unity is very different than uniformity. So the Columbus history narrative was eye-opening for me because I thought, yeah, I mean, obviously I understand that it wasn't all, you know, Mayflowers and, and exchange of turkeys and ideas, right? Eventually it got bloody and eventually it came down to who has a bigger stick and the people with the smaller stick lost. And I understand that as an adult, right, having been educated a reasonable amount, I understand that, but still there's this underlying sub-layer of how I process that from the way that I was taught this social construct at an early age, which was a very white-tinted lens. That we were on some sort of manifest destiny that, you know, Really, maybe there were some bad things and some bad people along the way, but in general, it was a good thing that we killed and slaughtered the people that were here first so that we could benefit. And when I say we, I mean white people. I thought it was also interesting in a personal sort of light bulb moment in these readings, <clears throat> Burns talks about Darwin's original title. Did anyone know what Darwin's original title was, his famous book known as what? Origins of the Species, right? The original and full title is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. That was Darwin's original title. 
We only know it as the origins of species. We want to drop off the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. We start to see a way in which socially we have a very whitewashed social environment. And there are things that, if we're not aware, can create a lot of problems. And so Jeff kind of talked a little bit about the Jesus perspective, right? God's perspective for his people. Biblically, how are we supposed to even view one another? I want to maybe kind of sidestep a bit and talk specifically about dominant culture. I no longer am employed by this church, so if I say things that you don't like, I don't have to come back on Sunday. <laughs> so I'm going to let it fly a little bit. <laughs> so we recognize that race is a social construct, and yet it still is such an issue for us, even in the church. I think this has a lot to do with the idea of dominant culture. For the life of the first century church, at least for the first little while, although Jews were a minority within the larger Roman landscape, they were the dominant culture within the early Christian church. In fact, the Romans considered Christians just a sect of Judaism. And for probably decades, most all Christians were Jews. And so this dominant culture of Judaism inside the church, it created problems within the early church. They had a hard time figuring out how to let go of their cultural heritage in order to fully embrace others from different cultures and races as brothers and sisters in a family of God. The second half of, book of, the, second half of the book of Acts is dedicated almost exclusively to this whole dynamic as well as many of Paul's epistles, focusing on helping Christians navigate this Jew-Gentile issue. It was for the beginning of the early church, probably the main issue that they had to deal with and figure out. But they got it figured out and no one's ever struggled with it since. So, <laughs> Galatians chapter 2. Let's read here if you wouldn't mind. Galatians chapter 2, we get a brief window into this struggle, even amongst leaders. Uh-oh, watch out now. Galatians 2 and verse 11. When Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, not behind his back, not in the fellowship hall, not to some other brother like Ananias, you know. Hey, man, that dude Cephas is tripping. No, he said, I went to his face. I love it. A little little swagger right there in the NIV. You know, I posed it to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Uh oh, it's a chain reaction going on here. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles 
to follow Jewish customs. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul rebukes Peter after racial and cultural prejudice. And this is the same guy that was reinstated by Jesus saying, do you love me? Feed my sheep. This is the same guy that Jesus said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom upon you. I will build my church. Peter was no slouch Christian. And yet he even fell into this racial and cultural worldly mindset. And you see that there's a social component here. Because Paul says in one circumstance he was fine. But then when he started to feel pressure, he caved. And when he caved, other people caved. I think there's some lessons there. Somebody has to be Paul. Somebody has to say, no, stop. We're not going to let dominoes keep falling over here. This is not in accordance with the truth of the gospel. And I think it's also important that we have to learn that it's normative for there to be a dominant culture in any cultural setting. And this includes the church. The dominant culture of the early church was Judaism. There's nothing inherently wrong with there being a dominant culture. And I'm using that word, that language, dominant culture. I just realized I should clarify in case you didn't read. I'm using it as the authors use it. Dominant as in largest or most influential or most readily available, as in majority. Not dominant as in domineering per se, but as in majority. It's normative for there to be a majority culture. There's not always going to be equal amounts of every type of people in any given setting. If you were a Christian in Russia, the dominant culture would be Russian. If you were a Christian in Japan, the dominant culture would be Japanese. There are dominant cultures and there probably likely always will be. God's not wanting us to ignore our culture or our race or our ethnicity. And I know Mia has done a lot of work and taught a lot on this concept. She even taught publicly at a conference that God doesn't want us to be colorblind. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. God is not actually wanting us to be colorblind, but instead to learn how to love in the midst of diversity through Jesus. To be one in Jesus and not pretend that there are no differences between us, but instead to be one. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Revelation chapter 5, let's turn there. It's important to actually know what the picture is supposed to look like on the puzzle box. Revelation chapter 5. What does God say the puzzle's supposed to look like when you throw all these crazy pieces like us in a box together? He says in chapter 5, verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. In chapter 7, flip over, 
In verse 9, we see a similar vision. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Heaven is going to be diverse. John's vision was not that when we get to heaven, we're going to all be the same. We're all going to be sort of, you know, amalgamized into the Borg for all of my Trekkie fans out there, right? Resistance is futile. No, he says every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue, diversity is still going to be distinguished in heaven. You're still going to be able to see differences in others in heaven. That's John's vision of what heaven's going to be like. And that's going to continue on for eternity. Different, but unified. We're not all going to look the same. Apparently, we might not even all speak the same languages. Will we be able to understand each other's languages? I don't know. But diversity is from God. And it's going to continue on for eternity. I want to show this video. There's a favorite show of mine called West Wing. Any of you guys ever watched the show West Wing? It's an older show now, done in the 90s. It chronicles, it's a fictitious show, but it chronicles the staff and the presidency of those that work in the West Wing of the White House. And there's this episode where these two Native Americans come and stand in the lobby of the White House, and they essentially are having a stand-in protest. They have been trying to work through the legislative processes of having some of their issues heard and some of their legal disputes reconciled. And after many, many years, they've not had any answer. And so these two Native Americans go and stand in the lobby and say, we want answers. And they have reporters around. And the primary character of the show is the, uh, in this episode that's in the show, is the press secretary of the White House. And so she comes out and there's this running joke with all the staff throughout the episode. There's two Indians in the office, or in the lobby. And everyone's like, what's the end of the joke? No, really, there's two Indians standing in the lobby. And so they're trying to figure out how to deal with these two Indians, two Native Americans that are standing in the lobby wanting to voice and be heard and deal with their issues, but nothing can really be done. And ironically, this happens on the Thanksgiving holiday. And so one of the problems the White House staff is running into is everyone's gone for the Thanksgiving holiday. And all of the people that they should talk to are out already. They've already left. And at the very end of the episode, after the press secretary has essentially been won over and incited by the, the tragedy, basically, of their reality and their situation and her inability to essentially do anything about it, she's upset and she can't do anything. She comes to them at the end and their one bullet in their gun, their one angle that they had is that they had some press corps there and they could kind of make a big stink about it and they're all getting ready to leave too. And so we pick up the scene here. Thank you. 
I don't know if you guys could hear that. But basically, she comes out and she says, you got two choices. You can come back with me to the office and make an appointment to see somebody later, or you can make whatever calls you need to make to go public with this and make whatever stink you want to make with the press. It's up to you. And the elder statesman there says, okay. She says, okay, what? Okay, ma'am. And she's like, no, no, no. Okay, which one do you want to do? And the other younger lady says, we'll come back to the office. And then C.J. Craig, the white lady there, who's the press secretary for the White House, she says, how do you keep fighting against these smaller injustices when they're all from the mother of injustices? And the response is, what's the alternative? And I think this is instructive for us in the church as Christians, right? Sometimes we can feel so overwhelmed by how deep and how damaging and how marred racial relations in this country and even in the church are that we don't even know where to begin. And we can feel like we're standing in a lobby trying to, you know, figure out some small little injustice when they all stem from these massive injustices. But I think the woman's attitude was instructive. What's our alternative? Give in and accept hatred? Discord, jealousy, oppression, and marginalization in God's kingdom? I don't think so. We got to keep fighting no matter how long it takes, no, how, no matter how small the injustice is that we're trying to fight for righteousness in. It doesn't matter if we're going to be able to figure out how to solve all race relations in the church in our generation or not. Newsflash, we probably won't. But we can choose to keep fighting or we can choose to give up. We can choose to take sides and we can choose to segregate, which I think too many Christians for too long have been doing. Yeah. I believe that in many ways, God calls the dominant culture in any cultural setting to lead the charge in this fight, to utilize the God-given privileges perhaps not God-given, but at least circumstantial privileges of being a part of this majority or dominant culture, not for their own advantage and comfort, but for the advantage of others. As we continue to fight the battle of this world, of our culture and of our flesh, when it comes to racism, classism, and every other form of ism, that tends to break down the unity of the spirit of Christ, we gotta not grow weary. We gotta not tire of doing what is right. Yep. This book, White Awake, I wanna challenge every white person to read this. And the reason I wanna challenge white people to read this because I think, and this is one of the main theses of the book, white people as a part of the dominant culture don't understand their dominant culture. And therefore they're not in a position to actually fight for the oppressed and marginalized and those that suffer at the hands of a dominant culture, again, whether intended or not. And I think it's important to qualify that, right? That I'm not just the white guy coming in here to slap white people around, right? That's not my point. I don't want to do that. But I do want to raise awareness because the comfort 
of being in the dominant culture is that many times you don't have to be so aware of your culture because it's not in your face. If I get pulled over, I have illegal tent on every car since I was 18. If I get pulled over, I roll down the windows and I put my hands on a steering wheel and I know as soon as that officer sees my hands, I'm good. That's what it looks like to be a part of the dominant culture. Is that right? No, but it's real. And so if there's another set of hands that put their hands on that steering wheel in the same circumstance and they don't have that sense of confidence and security that I do, God has called me to fight for those that are oppressed, to release the captives, to be a part of Jesus' ministry that he pronounces in Luke 4 from Isaiah 58. This is what it means to be a part of God's kingdom is that those that have fight for those that don't. And we do it not to make ourselves feel better. We don't do it out of some worldly, socialistic mindset. But we do it because it's motivated by love. Because God loves all people. Because no matter what race you are, no matter what things we decide to divide over, whether it's tall or short or black hair or blonde or curly hair or nappy hair or straight hair or skin color or economic status or any number of things that we use to categorize and divide us, God says, no, every one of you are equally loved and valued because I created you, because you bear my image. And I think that comes back to Jeff's point is that in order to truly be motivated by love, and to be willing to let go of my rights, which we see the Apostle Paul do for the sake of others. It's got to come from a place of love that knows everyone has inherent and equal value to God. Even if in our culture, they don't. So it's a lot. We can grow weary. We can tire of doing what's right. We can be confused and not even know where to start. He says that as white people, we can feel guilty. We can have white guilt and shame. What was that thing you called, Jeff? What was the other one? Oh, the title of a book is actually called White Fragility. Yes, White Fragility. He references it in here too. I think these are concepts that open my eyes to what it means to be a part of a dominant culture that I never knew before. And how that interacts and interplays with other minority cultures. And then once I have an awareness, now I can assess them through the lens of Jesus and the scriptures. But if I'm not aware of them, I could just be unknowingly perpetuating things that aren't godly or perhaps even evil. So I want to challenge everyone in here, and I know not everyone here is a part of the school, but you came, so you get a book to read. Read White Awake, and Ryan can get you more information on that if you need it. Thank you for listening to this Faith Fuel podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time.